You're listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. Today we will be talking to hypnobirthing expert Catherine Graves, who helps to deliver babies in a beautiful way. So it's an episode about birth, and this is Christmas, about the birth of our Lord Jesus. So, you know, it's a good time to talk about birth. Thanks for all your comments on last week's podcast with Kai Hindi Andrews. Uh, next week, we'll bring you the podcast of Radhanat Swami, recorded live in County Wicklow, Ireland. Remember, my Netflix special, Rebirth, is out now. Watch it uh, on Netflix over Christmas. Instead of watching, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or Little Orphan Annie or that snowman and that little boy flying about in pyjamas, which I've always thought was troubling, watch Rebirth. With me, Russell Brand, on Netflix. My new book, Mentors. Oh, you can pre-order that if you want. Go to russellbrand.com. And now it's time to uh, enjoy this podcast with Catherine Graves. We spoke about birth, feminine empowerment through birth. We spoke about Harry Kane, who you may remember got a lot of uh, backlash and back chat for saying, you know, for praising his missus for having a baby without pain relief. Talks about the medicalization of birth, how to combat fear around birth. Look, you're going to hear all this in a minute. Catherine is offering a discount to all of you for her hypnobirthing online course. 20% off you can have. Enter the code RBPODCAST to receive 20% off. It's on uh, kghypnobirthing.com online course. So there you go. Learn how to do hypnobirthing with Catherine Graves. That's pretty good, isn't it? You could be delivering babies next time I meet you, if I ever meet you at all. Listen, if you want to communicate with us, you can tweet me at Rusty Rockets, hashtag under the skin, or you can follow me on Instagram at True Russell Brand and tag me with your Instagram stories to tell me what you thought of this week's episode. <laughs> but now it's time for Catherine Graves under the skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Catherine Graves, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Would you explain to me and hopefully the people listening what hypnobirthing is? It's such a simple question and it's the hardest one to answer. Um, people think of it as being a few techniques to have a more comfortable labor. They're very suspicious of the word hypno, which we rather wish we didn't have attached to us, but we do, and it's known as that now, so it can't be helped. Um, but it is a method whereby not only women have a more comfortable birth very frequently, sometimes pain-free, though of course you can't guarantee that, but however the birth pans out, if a woman feels calm, she will be producing different hormones and her experience will be one, but it was an empowering and wonderful experience, even if she needs extra help. And it will also, if she is producing different hormones, have an effect on the baby, which in the longer term is possibly even more important, though really? it's not what people come to the course for. You think that there's a potential that the manner of the birth has an impact throughout the life of the child? Well, we can't prove it yet because hypnobirthing hasn't been going on that long. But everybody says there is something different about this baby. It's difficult to define. There's a sort of poise, a serenity. Mm. Um, they often sleep through the night better. Sadly, we can't guarantee that. Um, they quite frequently, instead of losing a bit of weight after birth, will start putting on weight straight away because they haven't got a trauma to recover from. And if I meet a mum, maybe who I taught five or six years ago, she will always say about her child, she's such an easy child. She gets on with everybody. Nothing throws her. Um, and I'm convinced myself this is going to, I would love to do research in 20 years time on hypnobirthing babies and how they turn out but there would appear to be a marked difference with those children uh, so the benefit to the baby is possibly even greater to the mother and that's going to affect everybody they meet which is why I say it's a revolution. What are these techniques? The techniques in a way don't matter which is a funny thing to say because people come for the techniques. 
But if you talk about breathing and relaxation and visualizations, <coughs> they've me. been around for 20, 60 years. So you might say, well, what's different? And they're all good. But I think the underlying thing, the main thing that is different is the work to release fear. Because many, many women, I would almost say the majority, have fear around giving birth. And I often use the analogy of the story of the princess and the pea. You can always use fairy stories for anything, can't you? Um, and the princess couldn't sleep, even though she had a really comfortable bed because there was a pea under the mattress. And so they put more mattresses on. But the pea was still there and she was so delicate, but she still couldn't sleep. And the pea is like the fear. And the mattresses are like all the techniques for breathing, the visualization, the relaxations. But it wasn't until they removed the pea that she could sleep with just one mattress. And it's the pea is the fear. If you work on the fear, then all those other things work really well in the way they're designed to do. And the other thing that is different is that fathers are the most wonderful asset in the birthing room, much underused. Um, so we have a role for the father. And also the practice the couples do at home after the course. You see, hypnobirthing is not done at the course. And if, funnily enough, it's not done at the birth. It's done in the practice that they do. I mean, if you had a gig, you'd probably spend more time practicing, wouldn't you? Than yes. actually doing it. Well, it's the same with birth. That's when the work's done. You have to be mentally or spiritually prepared as well as physically. Why do you think there is so much fear, Catherine, around birth? I think it is largely the media these days. Every TV program, movie you see about birth is always someone screaming and writhing around in agony because it's not good drama otherwise. What to me is a normal birth could be described as a boring birth because it's a woman possibly quietly in a birthing pool and then suddenly gives birth to a baby. I mean, there may be a bit of heavy breathing. She may be silent. She may make a noise. But it's not drama. If you even a simple program, a benign program, if they have three or four births on the program, at least three of them will be an emergency of some sort. I mean, that you're right, that's a sort of a broader trend in a way of, um, I suppose, framing information. It's drama, it's not reality. Catherine, when um, England Captain Harry Kane's <laughs> wife gave birth to yes. their, I can't remember, the uh, sex of the child. She was a girl. There, he spoke rather proudly uh, about uh, the manner in which his wife gave birth. I think they used hypnobirthing, didn't they? Did. they? yes. Why was there such a tremendous backlash? The kind of thing I remember sort of reading was women saying, you know, this is almost as if there's a kind of female version of machismo, now coined the phrase feminismo, where there's a kind <laughs> of a bravado around certain behaviours. I read sort of some of, uh, commentators saying, you know, giving birth is bloody agony. There's nothing wrong with it if women want to, like, have epidurals. Nothing wrong uh, with it, no. No, if they want to. But it seems that there is a lot of weight, energy, shame, and uh, uh, identity around birth. I know people, friends who have had really difficult births. Um, why is it so complex? Like, why is it, well, not the birth itself, why is there such complexity in the attitudes around birth? Why is it so sort of laden with shame and stitched to identity-related issues? Well, when somebody's coming to a KG hypnobirthing course, they'll often say to me, well, if I do hypnobirthing, am I allowed drugs? And the answer is, well, of course you are, but you might find you don't need them. Mm. Um, so either way is fine. Um, hypnobirthing works for people who have more complicated births and for simple, straightforward births. But people who do have a um, maybe pain-free but certainly more comfortable or drug-free birth actually sometimes find it quite difficult to talk about it for this very reason. I remember one mum who went back to her antenatal group after the birth and there were half a dozen women there and they all went round the room telling their story. They were all horror stories. And when they got to her, the person in charge said, well, we don't need to hear yours because you were all right, weren't you? And in a way, it's considered a birth like that is unusual 
in my world, it's usual. And I want every woman to have the opportunity of giving birth like that because it's perfectly possible, which doesn't mean that nobody will want drugs or nobody will need an intervention, but it's a woman's experience within whatever happens. And if her mind is calm, she produces different hormones, birth is likely to be more straightforward and quicker, and therefore a more comfortable experience. Specifically, that women that are relaxed produce oxytocin yeah. as opposed to adrenaline and yeah. adrenaline is precisely what you don't want when you're trying to relax quite if you're producing adrenaline uh it's the enemy of oxytocin now adrenaline is not a bad hormone it's a perfectly good hormone and there are a couple of part times in birth where you have a little spurt of adrenaline to get things going that's how it's supposed to be but for example carrying on a conversation as we are now to answer anything that you say, I, the neocortex has to come into gear and I produce adrenaline because I'm thinking. And that's the enemy of intuitive um, exp ex behavior experience. Mm. And when you produce oxytocin, which is the hormone of calm, you also produce endorphins, which is nature's feel-good factor. So you take those, if you produce adrenaline, you're cutting off those natural resources so really what we do is help a woman to be in a situation where she produces oxytocin which makes labor efficient so, and endorphins that make it comfortable when you describe birth it seems to me that what you are describing is nature you're describing a natural situation how have how has something natural become subsumed into a mechanized or medicalized model? How would that happen and why? Well, medical support is wonderful when it's needed. Uh, I think sometimes a woman who does hypnobirthing feel does feel she's failed if she has medical support, which is a terrible thing if it's taught in that way, because some women need a cesarean. And it's fantastic. We are very lucky to live in a society where this help is available when it's needed. But, for example, um, the World Health Organization says that if the cesarean rate goes above about 15%, it's not increasing safety. And our cesarean rate in this country is approaching 30%. In America, it's approaching 40%. And there are some countries in the world, for instance, South America, South Africa, the Middle East, where it's 80 or 90 percent. And there is a birth center in America, in Tennessee, called The Farm. You may have heard of the lady who runs it, Ina May yeah, Gaskin. Her cesarean rate is under 5 percent. Now, I absolutely believe that every one of those cesareans saved a life. Mm. And it's absolutely wonderful. But it's just got... In fact, the World Health Organization issued a statement a few months ago saying birth has become over-medicalized. It's time that the pendulum swung back. Mm. But the reason for it, I think, is fear. This is not women's fear. The medical profession, are in terms of birth, there's a great deal of fear. Uh, fear of litigation, fear of being struck off. If you don't absolutely um, follow the guidelines, which are wonderful, but they may not be appropriate for every woman. Mm. But they don't put a foot outside the guidelines. Prior to the advent of modern birthing techniques and modern the ability for modern medicine to intervene, infant mortality would have been higher and uh, complications during childbirth would have been higher. So I, I imagine that the, the medical establishment has a position that will hold on with helping women and babies to survive their, you know, inverted commas, trauma of childbirth, which is, in fact, not an originally a medical idea, but a religious one in a Possibly, Christian yes. tradition. The, the, the labor is suffering and pain and, and in fact, a, a punishment directly yes, from free. God. <laughs> yeah, um, so, like, so there is a counter-argument to like, uh, like, because I suppose, uh, like, when one reduces a hypnobirthing argument, the the reduction is, you know, it's all well and good, saying, you know, just breathe deeply and visualize a sort of a positive birth. But 
what if the baby is breached or it's backwards or whatever you know whatever complications may occur now i've already heard you say that there is a place for medicine but the, the ideal should be a natural birth and then i think some people don't even like the idea of there being an ideal that is somehow a challenge to female autonomy and female choice that there should be a a pressure for women to have a particular type of birth what would you say to that well i mean if we're walking most of us walk naturally but crutches are really nice if you can't walk properly uh you need to and to go back to what you said about pain in childbirth uh, my understanding is but the word for pain in for Eve is translated as pain, and for Adam it's translated as hard work, and it's the same word, and it's the slight spin, if you like, that the early fathers put on it. And that wasn't quite asking you answering your question, but I've forgotten what your question was. I think that there might be a denial of essential nature. That's what oh, I absolutely. think. That's what I think might be behind it. That you know, as soon as you say there is such a thing as natural childbirth, that places an ideal it, it like that okay there is a thing called natural childbirth same as there is a sort of natural defecation you know like there's an ideal version you know for, for a platonic perfect ideal to which we can aspire um and i feel that perhaps this ideal has been used to or at least there seems to be a feeling that this ideal has been used to berate or challenge or undermine women that have had more difficult or complicated births? Well, we work very hard, but that shouldn't be the case. We, as I said earlier, we think it's amazing. And women who live in a society where medical help is, is available are extremely fortunate. And maybe it's slightly overused these days. Yes. That's all. If you get something like uh, with the word routine in front of it, I mean, many countries in the world, for example, have an episiotomy, cutting of a woman's to make a bigger passage for the baby to come out. It is routine. Um, it used to be routine in this country seven years, 70 years ago. Um, and sometimes it might mean that a baby could get out alive that would not. But routine? Cutting somebody? Hmm. Um, that's ridiculous. And it takes a long time for things to change. Now, 12% of the guidelines... Uh, from a Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists are based on Class A research. That's all. Now, it's better than 20 years ago because none of it mean, was. Class A research? Uh, probably proper, proper randomised controlled trials. Now, some things you can't research when it comes to birth. So it's not quite as bad as it sounds. Um, but it takes a long time for evidence to filter through. For example, um, if a bit of research advocates medicalization, it seems to be adopted overnight. It takes a long time for, for, uh, for research which questions medicalization to change things. For example, um, there is, has been for many years an idea that for longer, longer pregnancies are dangerous and the stillbirth rate increases. Yeah. For the last two years, the EMBRACE study, which is an annual study of stillbirth rates, has said that the stillbirth rate decreases after 42 weeks. But most women are still being told that it's dangerous, gets more dangerous beyond 42 weeks. Our experience as a family, my wife and I, uh, like was when my wife got pregnant, we didn't. The, the first reference that I think a woman has is her mother and her own birth. <laughs> and I think, like you say, their sort of customary attitude is that birth is a sort of a rite of passage for women, and that there is a sort of a lot of gore and sort of horror around it. And almost it's a bit hippie and new age to talk about it in terms other than that. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Somewhat. And then the first thing that we sort of thought of is kind of, oh, like, well, I guess we'll have the baby at some posh hospital, like uh, like on the telly, the Portland or something like that. We Where watched... cesarean, some of those hospitals, they have a very high cesarean rate. Yeah, I figure. Because I suppose, you know, that choice possibly leads to that, particularly if there is a sort of a conscious conspiracy on the part of the hospital to 
schedule and mm. an unconscious fear on the part of the family, then one can see how that would lead to those conclusions. We saw a, a, a um, documentary about the Portland Hospital and it didn't come out of it. It was covered in glory, like, you know, champagne corks popping, people, it, was, it looked pretty... That was probably the people who made the programme wanted to show that. Oh yes, I imagine it was strongly <laughs> I don't narrativized. Think one can necessarily um, judge the Portland Hospital on one, on one programme. No, I did though. It looked yes. really bad. Mm. It came out of it terrible, Catherine. It, you know, and and uh, um, and uh, it's, you know, like we've actually to tell the truth, the obstetrician that we were seeing prior, like you know, like at the beginning of my wife's first pregnancy, I think he's affiliated at a hospital. So anyway, then um, I don't quite know how we heard about hypnobirthing, but the more we learned about it, the more I realised that it was an attempt to uh, address the fear head on and for women to embrace the latent natural power that is realized through childbirth, the power of generating life and the power of delivering life that it seemed to me to have to pass through layer after layer of, in the case, in a way, sort of patriarchal authority and medical authority in an attempt that I felt was somehow connected to a broader, conspiracy seems like a strong word, but a kind of subjugation. I one up. <laughs> yes. You've, put, you've written conspiracy on your I've notepad. Conspiracy on my notepad. Yes. As in, there's a bloody conspiracy, or not there's not a bit. conspiracy. I don't think there's a single person, obstetrician or midwife, who goes into the profession without wanting to do the best for women and babies. And it's sort of a system that um, gets hold of them. Yes. And it's a lot of fear. Also, it's. Every single one of them wants to do the best. I put something on our Facebook group um, just a couple of days ago, which said, um, oh, bother, birth professional, something like that, is, is, is the mother. Mm. You know, people call themselves birth professionals. They're not. It's the only person who is the mother. Everybody else is just there to help her. Yes. She's the only professional in the room. She knows how to do it. Yes. We had our baby in the end in a midwife-led unit at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford and it yeah. was a phenomenal atmosphere to find right. myself in where naturally my wife was the central character, although I yeah. built my role occasionally with, I don't know, just flourish, flair, occasional sure. heel ball change. Uh, like, no, like I, it was, um, it, I felt the presence of powerful natural forces. It's a miracle. It's the only time in your life you'll be present at a miracle. Well, luckily, there was another one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Two miracles. Well, you're very lucky then, aren't you? The first one, and the second one in particular, like, it was two pushes, that baby. Mm. Two pushes. Like, mm. we went to that, like, the water's broke or there's, a, you know, there's like a, you use different language, eh? What would you say? The water's no, released? More, but, yes. Breaking sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I suppose so. And I so you think that um, the language around birth, is, again, is an unconscious indicator of the fear-based attitude. Absolutely, yes. One of the things that was really interesting that my wife did was learned all these different terms of like, you know, like, well, like um, to describe the feeling, mm. like, you know, oh, there will be burning, there will be stretching. How do you want to break down and describe? It might have been in your man, Michel Odon's book, actually, where it started to say what was routinely described as pain on further um, semantic analysis is, well, that's sort of a feeling of stretching, really. You know, and that was a very helpful method and tool. But when the, we looked at the language... It's terrible. Yeah. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Because if you feel... I mean, there is no doubt, I think, that the muscles of the uterus are probably the strongest muscles in the human body and they're working to capacity... But the rest of the body, all our other muscles, we've all used our muscles powerfully, but it hasn't been painful. Mm. So it does seem very strange that these muscles should be considered to be painful. Um, and it's a matter, hypnobirthing is not teaching somebody to do something, but it's teaching somebody to get out of a way so the body can do what it's really good at doing anyway. Do you think that some people experience birth complications simply because of an unawareness then? Yes, because if you're stressed and tense, um, well, you can refer it to an athlete. You know, maybe a golfer at the end of a major championship will tense up 
and miss a putt that's only a foot long. Mm. Whereas normally they could putt from off the green straight into the, straight into the hole because they've tensed up. And we all know it in our own lives. If you tense up, the body just doesn't work. We have little demonstrations that we can show to people in our classes to prove that this is true. Mm. It just doesn't work as well. And the person who first started that idea was an English opposition called Grantly Dick Reed, who I can tell you about briefly if you would like I'd me like to. I'd like to, yes. Um, he worked about 100 years ago. He worked at the London Hospital, which is now the Royal London Hospital because it's become grand. Mm. But then it was in the really poor part of London, the slums, the docks. And then also only women who could afford to pay could go to hospital. So poor people didn't. And he had seen many women in extreme agony and like obstetricians and midwives today a lot of the work is relieving pain and he was called out one night to a very poor home in the slums of east london a hovel not enough money for a bed you know water dripping through the ceiling and he went in and he offered the woman pain relief and she waved him away and very much to his credit he didn't try and force it on her and he stood back and he watched as she gave birth perfectly naturally and comfortably and afterwards, because he'd not seen this before, he asked her why she had refused a pain relief. And she simply said, well, it didn't hurt. It wasn't meant to, was it, doctor? And again, much to his credit, he went away and thought about this. And it was he who came up with the premise in the first place that the whole problem is fear. When you're afraid, you tense up. When you tense up, your body doesn't work properly. And then labour is tends to be longer, tends to be more painful because you're not allowing your body to work in the way it's designed to do. So what we do really is a getting rid of the preconceptions, the stresses, the tensions. Rather, yeah, okay, so we add the relaxations, but that's the simple bit. It's getting rid of the negatives, which is the important bit of, of hypnobirthing. Yes, is I suppose what you it seems you're saying, Catherine, is to prepare people to access the resources that mm. are naturally present, but perhaps forgotten. And in my own experience as the witness and secondary participant in the birth of my daughters, it became clear over the process of my wife's pregnancy that she would be at some point overtaken by a different energy a different force and i sometimes feel excuse me that our culture has precluded the presence of this natural female mm. power to the degree that when it's required and called upon the access is not as simple or as clear as it might once have been in a untutored and less civilized Absolutely. society. I mean, first thing you said was that you were the secondary participant. But in the NHS, as we have it, women mostly don't get continuity of care from an own midwife. Everybody without exception says this is the best form of care. And many units are moving towards it. But the only person who gives continuity of care, albeit not medical care, is the father. He's the person who's there throughout the pregnancy or the partner, or it may be if it's a single mum, maybe she has a sister she can call on. It doesn't necessarily have to be mm. a man. Of course it doesn't. But that person, the partner, is there throughout the pregnancy, tends to be there throughout the birth and afterwards. And that continuity of somebody you know and love is enormously important. And as far as we live in a world where we still don't have equal opportunity for men and women and in many ways and women have long been aspiring to it and it's right there should be equal opportunity but sometimes I mean, I think we forget the difference and pregnancy brings that home rather starkly <laughs> um, men are not terribly good at giving birth actually no women are rather better at it yes. um, men have a tendency to meddle um the number of women who've said to me, I would like to give birth at home, but he doesn't want me to. And I sort of think, how dare he? That's not his role. She knows. Um, and so suddenly a couple is cast into a situation where their roles are completely different. Whereas up to that point, they probably both went out to work, both earned money, 
both did maybe slightly different things at the weekend, but in general, their lives were the same. And suddenly they're very different. Um, plainly, her role is to give birth. And his role is not to... Yes, of course, I wish all decisions were made rationally and they're not. They're made emotionally, generally out of fear. But his role is to support her and sh protect her, f shield her from the negatives, mm. not to tell her what to do because she knows what to do. But his protective role is massively important and it's entirely natural. It's probably partly why the human race is so successful. You hear sometimes in terrorist attack of men protecting women with their bodies from bullets. It's so intuitive to protect your partner. And they're very, very good at it. And that's her role. Yes. I felt that it's, I suppose, a consequence of living the kind of lives that we do in which our relationship with nature, both inner and outer, is mediated by different civilizing forces, whether that's technology or protocols but in relationship with my partner over the course of the birth I've started to understand what my function was and how it was uh, a, a supporting role hmm. and that, that, that was sort of really all I could do was advocate on her behalf in times where she was not disposed to communicate verbally on account of the hmm. labouring. It's not all. It's really important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Hmm. You know, it was a sort of... It felt like the uh, hmm, the gap that separates us from all that is important became smaller like that the the sense of a secondary world became much clearer that something very i mean like firstly the, the first child there's such it's such novelty you know like we never experienced this it was overwhelming and incredible and actually the transition from house to hospital was a challenging one i wanted to have the baby at home so i was uh disappointed that we weren't doing that, but I knew that, you know, that again, my sort of vote was a, a, a less important. Um, but And the second time, though, my wife still wanted to have the baby at the John Radcliffe maternity wing, spy, as they call it, because she had such a good time, you know, uh, and really loved the women there, mostly women. I think there was a couple of men that were there. But and uh, but this time we stayed very cool. You know, we went for a, the uh, surges, stroke contractions <laughs> began in the morning, and uh, we went for a like we went for a walk, and like we came back for a while. It's all sort of conducted in a much more sort of calm way, and in fact, the uh, the distance between contractions did not meaningfully alter even on the forty-minute journey to the hospital. So we stayed super cool. Then we got there, and the midwife checked her out and we filled the bath stroke birth in pool and it just happened extremely quickly it was sort of so immediate and amazing it's like and but during it the presence of a second that the what i feel is sort of most beautiful is that this thing that has been concealed but present the, you know the baby is suddenly all that there is suddenly real it's still exciting for you, is it, each yes. time? You, do you still do births? Sadly, not very often, because you have to be on call. Mm. Uh, but one father said, which I thought was very profound, he said, when we had our first baby, I thought it's something you do. I now understand it's something that happens. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it is, it happens. It's just amazing. When you're there, it's a miracle. There were four people in my room and suddenly there are five. When did that person get here? Was it when it was born? Was it when it was conceived? Was it here before that anyway? You, you, it's beyond comprehension, isn't it? Yes, I believe <laughs> it is, because dealing with consciousness and matter in such a primal and immediate way is very, very beautiful and very challenging. And I think, um, and I maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you can tell me if I am, that because of the hypnobirthing that you did, and the work you did with your partner before the birth, it probably brought you closer together as a couple and also you closer together with your daughters because you know you were 
a useful part in how they came into the world. You weren't just sort of standing there, somebody standing there wishing you could help. Yeah, I felt integrated. Mm. Certainly felt that like I was present and also for, I suppose, for most uh, couples, the process of giving birth is going to be the most significant, most mm. important. And the fact that that was something that we undertook together in a way that was present definitely changed the way that we communicate and obviously uh, I hope I was respected my wife anyway but it certainly sort of introduces a different type of respect Mm. as well I feel and often particularly fathers after the course will say well those are life skills aren't they which of course what we teach people in the course is life skills you know for just for breathing you could use it before a job interview before you did a gig or, or whatever. Um, we happen to slant them towards birth, of course, because that's what people come for. But everything they learn is going to be there for them in every aspect of their lives. Yes, I suppose it's like being present and aware so that when there are significant changes, i.e. birth, that you are able to yield and use the naturally occurring changes, biochemical changes to your best advantage as opposed to sort of resisting and being terrified. But the the thing I'm mindful of, Catherine, is that there is still a sort of a, a... like I'm still sort of aware of the commentators I I read like after the Harry Kane incident because it seems that there is a sort of a clear division that surprises me actually because it's at odds with the general spirit of uh, sisterhood that I would think that or encompass any feminist movement and what could be more female than birth you know like it surprises me that um that there is still opposition around it. How do you have you any thoughts or ideas of how that could be alleviated, even ended? Um, I think opposition can arise from a misconception. Uh, when people do something like hypnobirthing, I suppose um, they can become so enthusiastic, and I do think it's a fact, as in any profession, that teachers vary. And it is quite possible that some do give the impression that somebody's failed if they yeah. haven't had the perfect birth. Now, when we train people, we are very, very keen. They shouldn't give that impression. Um, but I'm sure some do. Uh, and I think sometimes a woman, because she has come to the class in order to achieve normality, uh, Though some people come thinking I'm going to have a caesarean, but it might help anyway, which it does, Mm. and possibly change their minds after the course. Um, That's what they're aiming for. But birth as life rather frequently turns out not as we expected it to do. And if you're properly prepared, you're prepared whatever happens. And it should not be like that. I mean, what Harry Kane said was just a sweet and gentle accolade to his partner. And to say, because he's so proud of her not using pain relief, it's a bit of a non sequitur to say that anybody using pain relief has failed. It's not logical, but people leap to conclusions, don't they? It seems so. I think there needs to be a kind of intention to be offended, to be offended by that. Because he's not so he didn't explicitly say. No, it's a lovely my wife gentle didn't remark. Use pain medication, and those that do, this is my chance to attack you once and for all. How do you, um, so? Yeah, if no, you I, if you know, this again if, though, like is I think Catherine, sorry mm, to interrupt sorry, you, is no. a broader mm. internet problem that people are communicating on a scale that's not oh, previously yes. been encountered, and I think people. I'm sure you get like insults on the internet, and so do I. Yeah, I do. And I think that as well, what people like, like, you know, there's some interesting things are being vented out there, mm-hmm. I think. But 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 it still, for me, doesn't mean that we oughtn't investigate what that is. And I feel that possibly some women feel blamed for not having the perfect birth, whether they've been exposed to hypnobirthing or not. You know, I'm sort of when I'm thinking about my wife's positive experiences of childbirth and our positive experiences as a family, I think about a very close mate of mine. Both of the, the birth of both his children have been like really difficult and sort of scary sounding, and ambulances and intensive care units and incubators. I mean, it sounds 
terrifying and i wouldn't like for anyone that's been through that to bear the additional burden of a sense of inferiority so but that's how do you mitigate against that may i ask neither would i the fact is that probably the majority of births are extremely painful experiences um whether you regard that as because so that has in a way become normality because that's what if it, it is normal that's what most women experience so if you introduce a system whereby women might not experience that, it's rocking the boat of normality. Mm. Um, my purpose is that normality should be births as I see them. And then the medical professions who are super professionals who are superb at their jobs would be free to help the women who do need extra support. And it, um, I just can't see that there's a conflict, really. <laughs> I think the problem has arisen because we've got so far away from normality. And also, we live in an incredibly PC world. If nobody ever said anything except what was an entirely PC thing to say, it would be a very, very bland world we, lived in, we live in. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying you set out to be confrontational, but you have to be prepared sometimes to say what's so and take the slings and arrows that go with it. I agree with you. How did you get into this position? Why did you... Why did this become your personal quest? What is your background, please? I'm a mum. <laughs> so it's for your, for your <laughs> That's the best training. As a, as a mother. No, 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 not really. I have four children um, and I didn't have a career because four children is something of a full-time job. Uh, so it wasn't until I was 50 that I looked around for something to do and nobody wants you when you're 50 and you haven't got a track record. So having tried, had some slightly amusing experiences of trying to get a job, um, I gave up and just knew that I had to do something for myself. And through a various a series of strange circumstances and coincidences. What are they? It's rather long. Do you really oh, yeah. want to hear? Yeah, what else are we going to do? <laughs> well, one day um, I was looking for what to do and somebody brought the Sunday Times into my cottage. I never get a Sunday paper. And in that Sunday Times, there was a big half-page feature on the Bates method, which is the complementary therapy for eyesight. There's never, I think, before or since been a big feature on the Bates method in the Sunday Times. And I looked at it, I'm short-sighted, and I thought, that's what I want to do. So I did, and it was amazing. And a lot of problems with sight is imbalance between the two eyes, which could be related to imbalance between the two sides of the brain, but that would be a big question. And I thought that kinesiology had something to do with balance. So I called up somebody. Kinesiology? Yes, which it does. You have to tell us what that means. Oh, please, no. <laughs> <laughs> Is kinesiology a method by which the body intuitively understands what it needs to assess and correct? You can check up with the body what it wants directly through muscle testing, or that's the very simplistic view of it. It's quite good, isn't it? We'll go with a simplistic version for yes. the sake of a Prepity. story that began in a cottage with the Sunday Times. <laughs> so, wonderful yarn. So I trained in that. Um, and I thought it would be nice to have a hands-on therapy because touch is so important. And I trained in craniosacral therapy, which is a very... It's not really a manipulation. It's a gentle hands-on therapy to allow the body to get back into a state of relaxation functioning. Um, and then I went to a workshop one day and somebody, a kinesiology workshop, and somebody said, well, where did this branch of kinesiology that you're talking about come from? And the man said it was mirrored on the work of Milton Erickson, who was the father of modern hyp hypnotherapy. So the only way to find out about him seemed to be to claim, train as a hypnotherapist. So as a hypnotherapist... Bloody hell, she became a hypnotherapist as well. You've done kinesiology, yes. hypnotherapy... Craniosacral therapy. Craniosacral therapy. The Bates method. The Bates method? <laughs> running out of pad. <laughs> but, um, so, in hypnotherapy, as in many professions, you have to do some extra training every year to keep up your registration. So once you've done the obvious things, like stopping smoking and weight loss, I sort of thought, what do I do next? And somebody said, well, I went to this hypnobirthing course and I thought it was quite good. You might like it. So I went along with no other interest than that. But I thought it sounded quite good and I had to do something. And I was absolutely blown away by it. I thought it was amazing. It was an extra I offered as a hypnotherapist. And over the last 
14 years, it's taken over the whole of my life. I was just in the right place at the right time. I wrote a book because I needed it for my courses, um, which absolutely took off and went to the top of Amazon straight away. No way. Yeah. Did it? Um, there are more books now, so it's um, sometimes it's at the top and sometimes it's near it. But we <laughs> yeah, no, recognise the way publishing works. So they just think, oh, I was turned down by a, all pu- books. I was turned down by a publisher. Were you? I didn't have the time to tout it around publishers, so I just stuck it on Amazon and on Where our website. Where are you from? <laughs> Maybe I'm intuitive. I don't know. Where did you go? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Please? London. Whereabouts? Uh, Belsize Park. Mm. And then I spent most of my married life, or when I was bringing up my children, which wasn't always married, uh, living in the Teddington, Twickenham, Richmond area. And then when they grew up, I moved out to Wiltshire. Mm-hmm. The hip, so the, your background was already hypnosis. So I suppose in a way, like the hypnosis is obviously, or not necessarily obviously, one way of looking at it is inducing certain states. And I suppose with hypnobirthing, it's like the achievement of a state of relaxation for the function of birth. You said a minute, not a minute ago, but at the beginning of our interview, that you rather regretted the prefix hypno because you think it's misleading. What do you mean by that? Well, people have a conception. They see it on television and sort of... Um, stage hypnosis and they think it's scary and uh, people make you do things and it's not really it's extremely gentle and what it does is in a way help you let go of a negative that you've acquired in some way during life I think the hypnosis happened when people were programmed with a negative all you do in in, in formal hypnosis is help them let go of it so I like Focus this. on the positive. It's a letting go process, not an adding on process, just like hypnobirthing. Our preconditioning assumes a kind of neutrality, that what we are now is neutral. But it's of the norm, course, yes. Yeah, the norm. We're, but we are, of course, the product of mass hypnosis, mass <laughs> You could look at it like that. Absolutely. And possibly in various sort of disciplines or strains of life, you can induce different states as you say by letting go of negative preconditioning mm. letting go of the negatives is the principle of every philosophy every religion is it? every walk of life I how think. do you mean like through uh, like i in... don't know about every religion but i'm not going to defend <laughs> that's every, where i was going every i know it was that's why i got <laughs> in first <laughs> because what i'm thinking about actually is my own uh, understanding of addiction is a kind of a reprogramming of your mind that you have been conditioned to have certain beliefs yeah. about yourself, negative beliefs, meaning that you require certain strategies yeah. and habits to cope with life. And then the program of, you know, in my case, abstinence, 12 step recovery requires a kind of reprogramming. First, mm. the admission of a problem. Second, the belief it could be improved. Third, the willingness yes. to ask for help. And then then sort of an inventorying process where you break down and analyze, analyze the patterns mm. that led to your primary addiction. So this, um, I like the approach of the, the, the hypnosis is not adding a new ability, merely unpicking a, mm. sort of a negative piece of preconditioning or hacking in bad code. We're all, if it's a matter of, if we're going talking about healing rather than actual birth, nobody ever healed anybody. The healing quality is within us. If you cut your finger... You might put a plaster on it to stop it getting worse. You might take a pill to stop it getting infected. But the actual healing happens from within, which doesn't mean that drugs and surgery aren't useful. They are sticking plasters which can stop it getting worse while the natural healing process takes place. You know, you can cut out a cancer in an operation, but the healing comes from within to recover afterwards. Do you believe in God? <laughs> the trouble with that statement is it depends if my picture of God is the same as your picture of God. And I think everybody has a slightly different picture of God. So if hey, I said I yes or we, no. How could we not? Quite. <laughs> how could we not with our various imaginations and I read a, a, a wonderful statement in Lao Tzu, actually this morning. You which were reading said, Lao Tzu this morning? Yeah. What time? Where were you? What room were you in? What was going I was, on? I woke up at five and I didn't really want to get up till six. That's going on the pad. 5am. Didn't <laughs> actually get up to six. Read Lao And Zhuangzi, I, not it was. But one of the things I read was that the void is full of infinite possibility. So you saucy. You can spend a whole hour thinking of that one, can't you? The void is full of infinite possibility because, yeah, the void is 
limitless, the void, isn't it? And so the possibilities within it. But that's it's good because it sort of challenges you to think, well, what possibility is within this void? Voids tend to be a little bit scary, don't they? Yes, they are. In fact, my <laughs> own, I realised a thing about myself lately. It was that when I go through a transition, like let go of an old behaviour and develop perhaps a new awareness, fear is the first impulse I'm aware of mm. as I change even mm. if that change is positive and could even be regarded as growth. Mm. I th thought it analogous to this rather simplistic uh, perspective, that a child would initially have a limited consciousness and limited awareness. I watch it now with my two-year-old. As she becomes more and more aware of the world, I am careful not to fill that space with fear. I thought at the moment she doesn't even have a concept of under the bed, but there will be a point where she mm. thinks there's an under the bed where it is dark, where there is possibility. But it's not... Um, I had an interesting conversation with a group of fathers once. What was it about home birth that they didn't like? Uh, was it the mess? which is not that messy. No, the midwife clears it up anyway. Uh, was it the fact the midwife might not arrive in time? Mm, only slightly, because if a birth happens that quickly, there's not a problem. And the midwife at that moment is running down the road. <laughs> the real problem was fear of the unknown. They didn't know what to expect. They wanted to be somewhere where people knew what to expect. Yeah. And I think that's the basis of all fears. It's like you said, fear under the bed. Children are not afraid of the dark, but of a monster that might be in it. Ooh, that's good. What you don't that's know, horrible. I think. Children are not afraid of the dark, but of the monster that might be in it. Yes, so that, and that, in a sense, is a negativity bias, isn't it? We assume that the unknown will be negative. No one thinks, oh, there might be treasure under yeah. the bed in the dark. On the other hand, you do have fairies at the bottom of the garden, don't you? We do, but our sort <laughs> of new post-rational materialistic world starts to prohibit those kind of possibilities. Yes, perhaps. I bet you're one of them people who like that. You know, that scandal with the fairies where they were on little sticks. I bet you liked that, didn't you? <laughs> but when you think of most fairy stories, there is, there's a wicked witch, but there's also a princess and a handsome prince. I think that, you know, that the function, isn't it, of fairy stories is to give us a sort of a folk perspective of the complexity of reality yeah. and that our total self includes the wicked witch, the tyrannical king, the benevolent king, the prince, the princess. You know, that's, is, that's yeah. sort of what they're guiding us towards, isn't it? And understanding that we have both of those opportunities yes. simultaneously. Absolutely. Or do a course on it. <laughs> no, I'm too busy doing hypnobirthing. Get up a bit earlier, <laughs> laying in bed thinking about Lao for an hour until any definitive action is taken. Maybe it's action in inaction. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be dull about it. <laughs> I was only being protective. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, so I'm learning some good things. So what's our intention then? Is our intention, that, what is it, Catherine, the intention? Of what? Well, you, you and your intentions. Yeah, you got my, my intentions oh. mostly self-aggrandizement. But what's your intention? I don't believe it. That's a joke. But what's your <laughs> what your what's your gone? What's your intention for hypnobirthing? It has evolved. It has evolved because I see what happens, and over the years that I've been doing it, um, I see women have comfortable births, which is wonderful, and how all births could be, which doesn't mean they might not need help, but it can still be an empowering and wonderful experience. But I also see the effect on, on the babies. And I think that is of greater significance because birth must be the most empowering experience of our lives. And if a child is born in that way, it enters the world without having a trauma to recover from. And that is going to affect it, I am sure, for the whole of its life. There's Those no babies question. will be different. And it will affect the people they, need, they meet. And to me, this is the biggest revolution ever. Um, as mean? I say, I'm a revolutionary. Why are you a revolutionary? Because those people will affect, they'll be the leaven in the bread. And I think they can change <laughs> the world. i tell you what, these we need those people. kids in my house, they need to shape up. The two-year-old <laughs> is too intense. I mean, it's unbelievable because they were both born. Mabel didn't cry when she no, was born. exactly. She well, what did she got to cry about? Out. She just came out and began uninterrupted tyranny from that moment to this yes. where her every whim has been treated as an edict then the other <laughs> well, one she's got it right hasn't she? she seems to have done she's got me working for her the next <laughs> one peggy is mm. like sort of pure 
benign consciousness just looking out of the world with uninterrupted love looks just like nothing but love in her face. Well, birth didn't get in the way, of, the way for those girls, which is wonderful. And you're cr creating, to the best of your ability, an environment where you don't get in the way either. That's what I was trying to do. Stay out of the way. You can, yes. There's nothing you can do that's going to improve the situation according to your own no. codes. Mm -mm. So what you want to do? You want, like, when did you do this book, please, Catherine Graves? Oh, I suppose it must have been about eight years ago now, probably. And during this eight years, you've had a tre tremendous success with this book. And your objective is to, what, for women to have the choice? Absolutely. You go, for example, on Facebook and there are women who are saying, I'm not allowed to do this. My hospital doesn't let you do the other. Well, they do. Women can do whatever they like. Now, if they're sensible, they will listen carefully to the medical advice. Mm. They will also ask questions. And one very, very important of the part of the course we do in KG hypnobirthing, which I don't think applies to all hypnobirthing, is educate people to make to work with the system in which they find themselves. So they know their choices, they know the alternatives, they know the implications of their choices, and then they can make the best choice for them, which probably very often might not be the same choice that I make, because we're all different, we have a different life story. But they know um, what the alternatives are, but so often, and it's not that anybody has ill will in the NHS, because they certainly don't, they are wonderful people in the NHS. They're a lovely bunch, ain't they? The system has gone pretty wrong, but the people haven't. No. Um, but they're very busy. They have 20 minutes in an antenatal visit and half of that time is used for writing up notes for the legal protection of the hospital. They only have time to take a blood pressure, listen to baby's heart, take blood um, and that sort of thing. They don't have time to talk through problems, questions, and so two examples that I come up all the time. Women don't know, for example, who are planning to give birth in a birth centre, but they won't be allowed into the birth centre after 41 and a half weeks. Nobody right, tells yeah, them in advance, yeah, yeah. which is terrible. So they ought to know that when they're making the decision. Yeah, because, because it's considered, why is that? Because after that, they will go into the birth, into the obstetric unit and be induced. <clears throat> now, an induction is also something which is offered it doesn't say you have to be induced. The guidelines say it should be offered. And if you decline, you should be offered increased monitoring, which makes a lot of sense. But it's not the perception of women. Yes, again, with my wife, the, um, her, like both pregnancies went longer than was you know, predicted. But I, I was thinking it's a very difficult thing to quantify with all these variables, different women, no certainty around the date of conception. Mm. And so I suppose because massive institutions need to function according to a particular order, so individual freedom is necessarily compromised for the maintenance of the machine. Well, babies haven't been told that. They're notoriously unpredictable. Um, and also the 40 weeks that we consider a pregnancy to be the average length, average length of a pregnancy is somewhere between 41 and 41 and a half weeks. So all these women think, oh, I'm overdue at 40 weeks. They're not. They haven't got to the average length yet. That doesn't even add up to nine months. What the hell's going on with this system? Aristotle. Aristotle? It's all his fault. When's he going to pipe down? <laughs> Apparently, he said that 10 moons had astrological significance. So 10 times four weeks comes from Aristotle. So Originally. we're clinging to an Aristotelian idea in the face of evidence to the contrary. It takes a long time to evidence to fill the truth, for example. <laughs> thousands of years ago. Years ago. <laughs> when they discovered that x-rays were harmful to unborn babies, which the research showed, Apparently, it took from 15 years to stop oh, x-raying. It's too slow, isn't it? Because slow, isn't it? it had to be, you had to have corroborative research. People had been trained. There was investment in machinery. You have your little fiefdom. It takes a long time for that sort of change to Are take place. Are you a bit paranoid about conspiracies and stuff? No, I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's economics. just people, economics. Are, people are frightened and... Economics. Um, maybe it's a conspiracy. I've never. I hadn't really thought of it as though. No, we don't that. need to think about it in those terms. Just like that, it, when you give an example like that, 
you imagine what could be inferred in oncology or other areas where advances may have negative financial consequences for people? I think hypnobirthing has very positive financial consequences. Now, I can't prove it. Um, I'm in the process of setting up research so that hopefully I can prove it by the end of next year. What are you going to prove? But if you... If you cut down the length of labour, if you cut down the number of caesareans, it saves the NHS That's money. That's good, isn't it? Do you think, how are you going to prove yes. it? What, how big a case study? Um, I'll just do the mums I've taught myself because then I know they have had exactly the same training and I would hope to do a, a survey of about 200. Hey, the old four children, were any of them daughters and did you hypnobirth their babies? My daughter, it was quite interesting... I taught my daughter and my daughter-in-law hypnobirthing. They were within, pregnant within three months of each other. They came to an identical course. And it's a lovely example of how it can work in different ways. My daughter went for a home birth with an independent midwife. Her pregnancy at 43 weeks, her baby hadn't arrived. Well, you see, that's what people say. Well, why, why? Because it's bigger because than, it's bigger than Aristotle. Exactly. Ten moons. <laughs> um, so at that point, she agreed to... What's going on in there? What's going on in there? She agreed to an induced labour, um, which is tougher. It tends to be more painful. Um, plainly, if a baby had been ready, I can talk about when a baby's ready, but that's a separate issue. But she did the whole of a fairly long induced labour with no drugs just using her hypnobirthing techniques. As often happens with an induction, it ended with a cesarean because it's more pressure on the baby. So it wasn't the birth she had hoped for, but she had a more positive pregnancy because of what she'd done. She had no drugs in labor until the spinal block for the cesarean. So the drugs in the baby were minimal for it to recover from. Now my daughter-in-law, this is quite important, she was the most skeptical person I ever taught because many people come sceptical. She only came because I was her mother-in-law and she couldn't get out of it. And she sat at the back of this group looking morose. <laughs> she was an Aussie and decided to have her baby in hospital because birth tends to be more medicalised in many countries, including Australia, than it is in this country. So the day her baby arrived, she woke fairly early in the morning thinking something might be happening and because she'd practised relaxation, went back to sleep. Late in the morning, they rang the hospital because her surges, contractions, were between four to seven minutes apart and one minute long. And um, the hospital said, wait until they're three or four minutes apart and regular. Go and have a nice warm bath and relax, which was very good advice. Many hospitals will say, take a couple of paracetamol, which is actually, uh, there isn't ironclad research, but there is an indication from studies that if you take paracetamol in early labour, it inhibits the production of prolactin, which is the hormone that's needed to soften the cervix. So it could actually make labour longer. Anyway, fortunately, Trudy didn't get that advice. So she soaked in a nice warm bath for a long time. And late in the afternoon, her contractions were exactly the same, not three to four minutes apart and regular, just the same, but she began to want to push. So they rang the hospital again, who slightly grudgingly said, well, you'd better come in. It was a few years ago, so people weren't quite so used to the fact that hypnobirthing mums showed no sign that the baby was coming sometimes. So they went in. Um, they couldn't quite get to the hospital because there were roadworks. So they stopped a block away in the taxi and walked through the roadworks. And every time she had a contraction, she leant on her husband and did her breathing. And then he picked her bag and went on the way. And when she got to the hospital, she was fully dilated and the baby was born half an hour later. So two contrasting different births. The second one is a birth that any woman would hope for, but in both, hypnobirthing made a difference. That's the important thing. Because in a sense, it's just awareness. It's, a, it's awareness, some techniques and a, and a vision and understanding of birth as something natural as opposed to something yeah. abstract. I suppose because of this thing that you said, that a father said that it's something that happens, mm. you know, which is difficult to uh, contradict, it's, uh, that's something that I think in a, a old world like ours is a frightening idea that we are subject to nature in this way. Although, of course, someone, I would see that as very beautiful that we are sort of tossed around on sort of the oceans of energies that we'll never be able to yes. truly understand. And birth is but one example, death being the other obvious one, mm. of the way that these forces function. And, and, and I suppose that fear is an understandable response in denial 
of the inevitability of those forces. And we don't live with birth in our reality on a day-to-day basis, maybe like people used to. You know, your sister had a baby last month. Your cousin had one um, a year ago. Maybe your friend down the road, the baby died. I mean, sadly, sometimes babies do. Fortunately, it's rare these days. My great-aunt was a district nurse in a village in Wiltshire. And she said the poor people had much easier births than the wealthy people because they had birth around them all the time. They lived in a cottage. The whole family was there when they were giving birth. There was no electric light, so it was dark. Whereas wealthy people had electricity. You had an obstetrician and a special nurse down from London, strangers walking in. And Mm. it's very subtle. Um, And it's not where you think you'll be safe. It's what you as an animal feel safe. Yes. It's so instinctive. Um, And that's really the difference, I think. I like that. Catherine Graves, that our denial of our essential animal stroke (laughs) divine nature causes us to become inhibited and prohibits the natural flow of energies that are our birthright and our birth aid. Catherine, thank you very much for coming here and explaining that and uh, illuminating some complex issues and giving us a, a different perspective on the very natural but oddly controversial subject. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Russell. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Have you honestly? Yeah, you bet. Which were the best bits then? Where your notes are, where you said it was a conspiracy. No, I said you said it word. was a conspiracy. You've written down PC there. Yes, well, we mentioned that. We mentioned that and Maneve. You're planning to call a police constable <laughs> the second you leave. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah, must call the police. That was inappropriate that he said that. Well, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Catherine. Remember to let me know what you thought of it by sharing your Instagram stories and tagging me at True Russell Brand or on Twitter, hashtag under the skin. Our next guest is a personal mentor and teacher of mine, Radhanat Swami. We've got all sorts of people coming up. Steve Coogan, the Happy Pairs, Jim Carey. What do you mean when? I'll tell you when. When I get to America, that's when. I'll be there soon. In the meantime, why don't you spend some of this holiday period listening to Candice Owens, explosive. Dear Khan, informative. Tony Robbins, inspiring. David Rudolph, interesting. Have a listen to all those. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with people. And remember to uh, have a little look at Rebirth and uh, get other people to watch it as well. It's good for me if it does well. All right, I love you and I uh, hope you're having a lovely Christmas. Or if you've got another religion, I hope you're having a good that. Or if you have no religion at all, I hope you're having a good that. That's all of the alternatives that there are available. Lots of love. Bye.